from Bloom. <laughs> from. Uh, okay, live. Li what is it? <clears throat> oh, ready? Should I do it again? From Indiana University in Bloomington. From Indiana University in Bloomington. This is. This is. This is American Student Radio. Real chill. Real chill. Aliens, conspiracy, journalism, and lesbians. Welcome to American Student Radio. I'm Sarah Panfill, and today for our first show of the summer, we have a really special guest with us. We have David Crabb here in the studio. Hi. Say hi. I didn't yeah. know it was the first show of the summer. I feel special now. You should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so David Crabb is a, an award-winning storyteller. He's a performer. He's a comedian. He is an author of the book Bad Kid, and he has also performed with The Moth, hosted The Moth, and toured nationwide educating and we're really excited to have him here to talk with him. David, to start off, would you want to tell everyone what you are in town for? Uh, yes, I'm here for the uh, Writers' Conference. I am doing uh, a reading from my book tonight at 8, and I'm teaching a four-day uh, workshop. Uh, it's called Finding the You and Your Story, and I thought it was a really good name when I named it that, and then when I saw it in print, I was like, that is the cheesiest name for thing ever. <laughs> um, and I'm teaching a workshop that's uh, about, essentially, like, if you're going to, tell a true or write a true story from your life, um, how do you make yourself the protagonist and how do you make yourself matter in the story? Hmm. And so I guess before we get back to talking about the Writers Conference, I really wanted to just delve into you as a, as a performer, as a storyteller, how would you say um, you found your motivation to tell stories and how did it become your career? Because it's not an easy career to really jump into. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think most storytellers are people that discover the moth because discovering the moth and another show called Risk uh, that also has a podcast that's hilarious, um, they both sort of provide a platform, I think, for people who have maybe had a trait of themselves in terms of being a storyteller their whole life and all of a sudden you have a place where you're like, that's how I felt. I was like, I've been doing that my whole life. I've been like the guy in like middle school who was like trying to make people laugh with stories and I'm, I feel like I've always been the guy that people are like, David, David, you have to tell that thing. Tell the thing about the dentist, you know, or whatever. Um, and it was great because five, six years ago I heard of this thing called the moth and I was like, what do you mean? There's like three, four, five hundred people that come to a place and they just watch each other tell five minute stories. Yeah that sounds like a nightmare slash amazing. And it was amazing. Um, and I got addicted to going, and then I started working with them as an educator and then a host. Um, and uh, I put together a solo show first called Bad Kid that was basically the culmination of a lot of those stories that came together in one longer narrative. It's directed and co-written by my friend Josh Matthews, who's a clown. So he very quickly made me realize that it was going to be storytelling. It was very active. It's like a workout doing the show. Um, and then uh, it got a great review in The Times. And when that happens, agents just call you randomly to be like, hey, do you, you want to write a book? Like, it's very strange. Um, and uh, I paired with this uh, agent, Alex Glass, really well. So he sort of shepherded me through uh, getting everything that I'd done on stage onto the page. Hmm. Yeah, and Bad Kid is so great because I think it, it's, such a, it's such a story from the heart. And I, that's what I love about The Moth as well. And mm -hmm. so I definitely saw that connection between you standing up live and telling stories and also even putting it on the page. I think it's amazing you were able to get that heartfelt, you know, storytelling on the page. Um, but for you, I guess, was it difficult to, to get it on the page? What was that process like? Yeah, it was, because I think, 
you know, and part of the workshop I'm teaching is about that, about how, you know, I come at writing from a place of, of theater and performance. And for me, those two um, processes are integral to one another. Um, I'm writing a new book now and I'm trying to tell those stories out. I get to see, you know, how do people respond. I get to take their temperature and then I get to go back and like write differently. Or it works the other way as well. Um, so, yeah, I guess, it, I guess that, that the interesting thing for me in terms of trying to get the story on the page was that I do a lot of character work, right? So when I do um, my mom, she taught, oh, honey, you can't, you know, and that's like a big thing. Like I assume a physicality, I give her little tiny dinosaur arms, and that's a big part of communicating who she is to an audience that can see and hear me. And I went uh, through a phase at first where I was really challenged trying to figure out, well, how do I explain this like tiny redhead woman from Newfoundland? In a way, uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different way, that's still entertaining and funny, but you can't see me. So that was the first challenge. And then the second was just, you know, I wasted a few months trying to write the way I think a writer should write. I mean, I'd been, and what I took for granted was that all my moth stories, everything I've ever done on stage, back to like high school, I've written. I've been writing for the longest time. But I guess in my mind, that writing, um, I was sort of eschewing that writing, thinking, oh, well, that's writing I was doing to be funny or to be on stage. And once I stopped trying to write like other writers or be writerly, I was like, oh, I could just write like my voice. Like that was another sort of revelation um, because the first few drafts, people were like, it's good, but it doesn't sound like you. Why don't you just write the joke the way you did on stage? So it, interestingly, it was a little bit of both. Like how do, I, how do I bring some things down to a level that works on the page and how do I uh, take other aspects of the performance and make them bigger for the page, if that makes sense. And it took about two years to get it right. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, you also say, I remember reading sort of your foreword to the book and you apologize to like mm. family and friends, anyone yeah. who knew you mm. at the time, because you do write a lot about your experiences with drugs, with uh, just recklessness mm -hmm. of teenager age um, and, you know, and sexual exploits. And so it's so intimate um, and such a reveal, I think, to write a memoir like that. Was that ever something you struggled with in, in both your performing and in writing to reveal so much of yourself? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 love, I love hearing and reading true stories from people about transgression. Uh, you know, I, I think we live, we live in a culture now that has this weird kind of like effed up mentality about shame and, and I think a big part of the way I want to educate people in terms of telling their stories and a, a thing that I want to write against is a kind of fearlessness about your past. You know, I, I, don't, I think very few people in the world are beyond redemption. And I think it's strange when I hear people who are like, well, I would never write about that because of X, Y, and Z, right? I mean, I have friends, like, I write about people in that book who, like, huffed Freon, who, um, who ate uh, Vicks inhalers to get high. Uh, and now these people are adults. And a lot of them uh, teach in elementary schools or run church youth programs. So I felt like I'm part of my job in changing their identities is that I do want to protect them because their lives have shifted in a direction where they don't want to be the guy that wore like an elephant thong and ran around a party like high on acid, right? <laughs> and, I, and I get that, but I'm an artist and the cool thing in that for, for me is that I get, I get to share all of that. Like I don't, 
And in a way, like, it makes me frustrated that you can't be, you can't run a PTA program and be, like, a respected member of the community and say, yeah, here's some stuff I did when I was young. But that being said, I get it. Like, I get it. And I understand why they need to be protected in that sense. Hmm. So are there any particular memories that you have from that youthful stage mm -hmm. that, like, you've kept with you and you continue to share more frequently than others? Uh, you mean, like, things that aren't in the book? Yeah, like something, I don't know, maybe something that you chose not to write about in the book, but that is really mm. something maybe you keep to yourself? Well, I mean, like I'm trying to write the second book now. So there are some stories from that time that didn't make the book. Like one story that I tell a lot that people love is about, it's called Frederica Kruger, um, and it is about... Um, Halloween when I was in middle school and I got this very high-end Freddy Krueger outfit and the mask and everything but then I basically was really bored with it so I turned it into a drag character and I like <laughs> stuffed my mom's bra uh, I put on an apron I went to this party with a basket full of Twinkies with ketchup on them that were lady fingers <laughs> and I tell this story and the story that story for me is one I love telling because it's kind of about you know I hadn't come out yet so a lot of that was like figuring out my identity like how can I screw with people's perceptions and be someone who can because I was like a very unpopular kid that no one really like a lot of people, if I would have taken off the mask at the party, they would have been like, who are you? Like, <laughs> but at the party, no one knew who I was, and I ran around in character for like two hours. And it was one of the first times that I really got to play with like identity. And I had never been that free and fun. Like I like ran my finger blade on like on like the cheeks of jocks. Like pe kids who would have been like, what are you doing? But they thought it was so hilarious as Frederica Krueger. And I think that was part of the book earlier that we took out. But for me, that story is a real precursor to what becoming goth was all about. For kids now and for kids then, it's like playing around with your identity. It's kind of, it's kind of like being a clown in the world, in a way. And I think that you're allowed to behave or act in a different way if you feel like you have that kind of armor. Hmm. So, do you see? You said today, do you see kids still taking refuge, sort of, in the goth makeup? In oh yeah, yeah. Goth never dies, um, but goth gets new names. Like now, I think a lot of people see. Emo, I think goth has become emo. And now when you say goth, there's something about new goth that's a lot more like piratey. Like there's something of a lot more like the vinyl and lasers. And I don't, I don't, sorry, new goth, I don't like it. Um, I felt like when I was young and goth, there was something a little bit like new romantic and moody about it. Everyone's a little sad and horny. And I feel like now goths are a little bit more like, Rawr! like the music's a little more, like goth is now something that's a bit more metal. Um, yeah, and that, but that's fine, whatever. I like that it's emo now. I think that's an appropriate name for the sad goth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess when I think about my youth growing up, I mean, it was also like, it's different geographically for sure. sure growing up in Indiana, Indianapolis suburbs, but like there are these threads that I think are similar throughout, mm -hmm. and I think. That's what's interesting about connecting through storytelling is sort of trying to find the universality of a story. Mm -hmm. Is that consciously in your mind when you when you share these stories? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think at a certain point, you know, as you create art, you tell stories, you write books, it becomes unconscious. But for me, when I wrote the book, it is something that I'm forced to think about in my top brain a lot because I'm. It's something that comes into the way I educate people about storytelling. Um, I just said this yesterday in the class, you know, people come into storytelling and they don't know what they want to talk about. Some of the times they feel like they have no stories. And oftentimes they'll say things like, well, I mean, I do have those three years that I worked with primates in Africa. And I'll be like, why don't you talk about that? And their idea is, well, it will alienate people because 
you don't understand the geography, you don't understand um, primate research, I have to get into all this like science XYZ, right? And they're kind of missing the boat because y you should, especially when you start telling stories, like choose the thing that's like the, the glittering bait in the water, right? It's going to make like all the fishies be like, what is that? I want, I want to know that. I'm gonna, and, and a great storyteller and something that I try to do in the book is I try to use those aspects of my life that might seem in an immediate way like you're totally not connected to them, right? Like you grew up, you like country music, and you grew up in, in Indiana, and you're a 55-year-old heterosexual guy with seven kids, okay? And you're like, I don't know about goth, I don't know about that age group, I don't know who Susie and the Banshees are, you're just horribly confused, right? But there's something about it, hopefully, that is interesting, it's also different. What I hope that story can do once you're lured in and what anyone's story about working with primates in Uganda or growing up in, in Bloomington is it should become a mirror, right? Meaning that the lure is all the exotic aspects of the narrative. And hopefully what the story will do once the reader or the watcher is connected is make them feel like, oh my God, I see me in there. That is me. Um, and I think a storyteller can do that through basically through emotion, right? Like you, you might not connect with the bands and the costumes and the geography, but you connect with what it's like to feel like you don't fit in. You connect with what it feels like to be in love with someone that will never love you back. You know what it feels like to wish your parents understood you, but constantly feeling like you're being rejected by them, right? Um, so yeah, that, that is something that I try to think about a lot, is how can, I, how can I write about crazy, zany, colorful things that are very different, but that still allow connection with an audience? It's really funny to me that you mentioned like seeing yourself in the narrative and things like that because one of the things I really love about Bad Kid is the cover for the <laughs> book and it's just this photo of you yeah. with ridiculous makeup on and mm -hmm. I don't I don't see myself in it but I think it's really funny that that's how you chose to sort of showcase the book and hopefully to grab people's attention because it very much is like the glittering bait in the water like you said like people see that and they're like what? What's going on here? Yeah, the book jacket is a is a very strange process. Um, I I was very you know because it's interesting writing a book and it's so fun writing a book now that isn't grounded in anything that came before it because you're totally free but it's also a little bit uh, like scary, uh, like I feel like I'm an agoraphobic outside like I need a railing to hold on to. You know, doing the book was interesting because we'd already done the solo show so we had all this artwork like the cover of the book essentially is a photo from the poster for the solo show. But I was like, oh, I want it to be totally different and we had worked on all these books there's like an email chain that's a hundred people and my idea was I wanted it to look like scrawling on a notebook and we went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and I thought it was finally there until someone from marketing was like um you realize that it makes this book look like a children's book or like a YA book and we're like ooh, <laughs> there's a lot of drug use and uh erections in this book so maybe we should change that and then the designer came back with this cover which is the yearbook photo uh with the hot pink circle around it and that was like two, two emails later we were done. So that whole process is really interesting to get to. And that photo of me, people are like, was that really your high school photo? And I'm like, I wish I went to a high school that was cool enough to have let me do that. <laughs> um, that was taken when I did the solo show. So that photo is maybe seven years old. Yeah, I mean, there's a rose against your cheek. I think that's what gives it away. A dead a, rose. A dead rose, of course. <laughs> and if it was in color, you'd see that it was actually a blue rose. Yeah. I don't know what that means symbolically, but... Sadness. Sadness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just lightly touching your cheek. And you include, I mean, you include photos throughout the book, which yeah. I found myself while reading wanting to skip ahead and just see the photos just because I loved <laughs> every time there was a photo included. It gave me like, I don't know, a sense of grounding and this is where you were, you know, this is what you looked like at this time in your life. And it often... Um, correlated with what you were doing and your progression. 
as a person, I yeah. guess. The, the, the photos the photos were fun. The photos required a lot of like lawyer stuff. Because uh, writing, uh, writing a memoir now, it's a whole new world for memoirs. It's a terrifying new world. Um, because people like, um, what was his name? Is it James Frey who wrote A Million Little Pieces? He's mm. the guy that wrote the book about, you know, being a drug addict and spending all this time in a rehab facility, but then it turned out that he was just in like a drunk tank overnight or something. All of it fabricated. And he had to apologize on Oprah because it was a book of the month club. And, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I get that, but I think that the important, you know, we, we, we really enjoyed holding his, you know, his feet over the flames about that. But no one really asked the question, like, what is the world of literature like right now that he felt like he couldn't just sell it as a really amazing piece of fiction? Like, why did he feel like he had to do that? So now, because of books like his, um, all those photos, I had to get on the phone with a lawyer for like hours because there were initially photos of a lot of the people in the book. Right now you'll notice it's mainly just me, my mom, uh, and my best friend, uh, Glenn. Oh, Greg. Um, and, uh, and, and it was because those were the two people that were kind of mainstays in my life and that they could sign off on having their pictures used. Um, my friend Greg was so excited and so supportive. Wow. And, and again, he's one of those people, you know, he, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have kids, he doesn't have a family, he doesn't work in a church or for a PTA. He's, um, he's a, a, a masseuse and a, and a healer. He does Reiki and massage. So he's like, it's our journey, but it's your story, David. He was so like, oh, he was it. so cool. <laughs> and amazing. He was so cool and like open about it. And I'm really glad that we can include all those pictures of us. Gosh, that's great to hear that you're still in touch with with Greg, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. who is, for those of you who haven't read the book, he is um, someone you follow throughout because he's your mm -hmm. best friend throughout these years. He's who you make friends with before you're out, um, before he's out, and you guys are sort of just drawn to one another. And then yeah. I love, you know, the sequence when you re both reveal that, yeah. that you're gay and it's just yeah. this whole like, well, I'm gay too. And yeah. that's amazing. Um, I mean, you both become these sort of goth, you know, drug-using, drug-abusing uh, teenagers. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, I don't know. It's incredible. Yeah, he's, you know, like every time, like, I would send him a photo or, like, send him a pa passage to read or I'd give him the book, he'd say over and over again. And we would look at each other sometimes and we would laugh about, remember the time we ate that... We ate that cold medicine in the basement of the club, and that freaky guy like drove us in his pinto, wherever. And we'll laugh, and then we'll look at each other, and we'll just be like, "I'm so glad we're alive." <laughs> like we just had like a, a real genuine moment of like, "Oh God, me too, brother." You know. Um, uh, but yeah, he's he's great and lovely, and you know, we we lost touch for a few years during college, and then we sort of got back in touch. And even though we've been you know close friends again for years, writing and releasing this book brought us like with my mom too definitely brought us like much closer like really close in a way that you know when I tell people who are writing memoirs or telling stories I tell them one of the best things they can do because people are like but I don't remember everything well you're not going to remember everything so fill in the blanks it's not like you're lying by saying actually my mother was the murderer you're not like <laughs> telling you know you're just trying to get from point A to B and when you don't remember contact people from your past that's one of my favorite things about writing memoir I'm writing now a lot about um, New York during 9-11 and you know everyone's memories are so jangled and and fried over that whole period that I've connected with all these people asking them questions about that time and it's so lovely to be in touch with them and getting in touch with Greg in the process of writing this it was like we were reliving all of that but we were also like bonding about who we were now in a whole new way um, so even if the book was a total flop and everyone hated it I'd be like I'm so glad I reconnected with Greg <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah for me too um, I guess now looking back while it seems like you took joy in sort of um, reveling in those memories, 
is there a part of you like what you said about with with Greg just sort of saying wow I'm glad we're alive is there a part of you that has any sort of regret over over all of the drugs consumed all of that uh, no I mean again and I think that speaks to the idea of you know there's a there's a thing my dad said to me and it's in the book he says you know I, I think you could, you're only as bad a kid as the adult you grow up to be, right? And a lot of that is left to, to fate. I mean, who knows what's going to happen. Um, you know, there was an aspect, you know, this is in the forward of the book, and in the initial draft, it was much more a book written as me now looking back before we went back and we decided, no, let's write this from like 16, 17-year-old me, and that changed because it, it sort of cuts out reflection. And in the earlier drafts, there was a lot of reflection on the idea that, you know, I, I, I really... I drank a lot, I took a lot of drugs, and I'm here now and I'm fine. And the idea of taking, like, if I took a hit of acid now, I would just stress about, like, my taxes. Like, I can't even imagine, mm-hmm. like, doing any, like, behaving that way now or doing that. I mean, I do love a stiff Manhattan, but anyway. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I knew people who tried acid one time uh, and it led them down a, a certain path. Or, you know, I had a friend uh, in high school, I don't write about this, but got really, they got really into morphine for a spell, you know? We're all made different ways, and depending on our physiologies and our families and what kind of support system we have, things can happen to us. You know, I, I feel like a pretty lucky guy that I got to do all that, and, and it's a testament to my parents and my friends um, that I'm okay. And, and I'm, I'm talking about this like, like I was in some sort of rehab facility. Like, it's very playful in the book. The book isn't necessarily designed to be a cautionary tale. Um, that being said, like, no, I, if I had, if I could take back any of that stuff, I wouldn't be who I am. That being said, I'm lucky that I did all that stuff and didn't end up in, you know, getting pulled over when I was driving on acid or ending up in a juvenile facility or having a record. You know, I'm, I feel lucky in a lot of ways. So you mentioned that the book is written in sort of like a joking, playful kind of Mm -hmm. tone. And that's kind of how it comes across in a lot of your stories with the moth as well. Mm -hmm. But sometimes you do go into a little bit touchier, more emotional Yeah, like the end of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What sort of, is it different talking about those harder things and those more serious things than to take on the joking and playful tones? Yeah. I mean, I do, I do feel like there's a, there's a different kind of, there's a poetry to writing about melancholy and loss that I'm not saying there's not a, there's not a certain kind of poetry to writing a hilarious scene of dialogue with my mother who's trying to explain what that you know unisex clearcell doesn't mean bisexual or whatever like that's a fun thing to write and there's an art to writing that but i feel like i write from a different place when i get into the more meditative aspects of you know like at the end of the book i do feel like there's a shift and that's one thing i love about stories nonfiction you know i love the whole salty sweet combo like that's one of my favorite things in the world i like I like getting to know a piece of art and thinking that I understand it and then it's surprising me. Um, you know, there's, I feel like the book is pretty well reviewed, but like on Amazon, my friend forwarded me this because there's this one review. It's, I think it's like one of the only like one star reviews of this guy who's like, it was supposed to be funny. I saw him tell stories. I laughed so much. I started laughing at this book and then it was not funny. Bad things happen. And I'm like, what is it? Like, you know, and, 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 and I guess that that's an expectation. I, mean, I think that's why there's so much crappy art in television and movies is because a lot of people don't want to surprise people. Like, give them what they want, kid, you know? And I think every, you know, there's a lot of funny stories, especially when I host with the moth. It's not my job to be the salty. Like a lot of the stories I tell in the moth because I need to support the other people who are sometimes sharing really heavy things. My job is to, to be the sweet, right? Yeah. And that's all I do. And I love that job. But when I get to tell a story 
and it's me, and I own that like 10 minutes in a cabaret or on the radio or at a reading series, whatever. I want to. I, I love that duality. That's something that I really strive for. Is the idea that that I can make you you laugh and then feel something? Because life is like that. When I hear a story that's both of those things, I'm like, oh, that's how life felt. Um, I always tell people when they stand up to tell a story if they're a student and they stand up and they're like, uh, so I'm getting a divorce from my husband right now. He's literally a piece of human garbage. I met Bob 20 years ago. He was so handsome. He had beautiful blue. You, you've already checked out because you've already gotten like the sadness. And that's because the person didn't tell the story from the place it started. That story needs to start with, I met the hottest guy when I was 19 in college. He had big biceps and blue eyes and I was all about him. Like you need to make me feel all that joy and love and happiness so that then when the marriage doesn't work out, I feel that shift that you felt in your life. So that's an important thing for me when I put together a story or a book. Yeah, both of those things. Hmm. So that craft element that you're talking about, I mean, that narrative craft, I suppose, do you think that that came later or was it something that was natural for you? I mean, you talk about as a kid, you were always the person telling stories and being asked to share mm. stories. But I mean, you truly seem to have almost a, a method, I suppose, uh, to your narrative craft. So when did that come? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it came from telling stories on stage. Um, you know, I do, it's interesting right now because there, there are other uh, writers in the festival and I'm going to some of their workshops and uh, writer Salvatore yesterday is doing a workshop about words, about getting into the specific use. So like, so he shows like a sentence, uh, you know, in a story by Cheever and he like, literally goes into each word and he talks about like syllabants and the repetition and how many consonants and it and it's it's so fascinating to me to think about writing like that because it's not a thing that I do and I want to do more of that because it's it's just interesting I'm more of like a like I've always thought this way like if I'm putting together a theater piece or writing a book or a story like I'm sort of a, a like a big thinker in terms of like it's easy for me to step out and see the thing like I can see sort of the emotional graph of what I want and then I have to figure out how, what are the pieces and details and elements of the story that I put into place so that that rhythm is correct. And I think a lot of storytellers do that. Um, there's a lot of people that tell uh, at the moth all the time and sometimes that can be to your deficit because you start to recognize the same pattern and you know, it's the same, per the same person telling five different stories, but every time they hit like the four and a half minute mark, you're like, oh, they've gotten a minute, more and a half, oh, the tears, right? Like, and you start to feel that. So it is a thing you have to be careful about, but for me, I'm, I'm a broad thinker in, in that sense. Um, the, the book I'm writing now is about a time in my life, much like Bad Kid is, but as opposed to trying to uh, think of the whole book as a story with an emotional depth at the end. I'm trying to put that at the end of each story. Like I'm basically trying to write each chapter essay as a smaller version of that rhythm in Bad Kid. So that's been kind of fun and interesting to feel like how instead of waiting till the end after all the laughter to like hit them in the heart, how do you sort of do it regularly throughout? Um, so yeah. I don't know if that answers your question. It probably answers seven questions. <laughs> I love going to Soma when I come here. They have a coffee, a drink called the Miel. It is oh, honey yeah. and steamed milk. I get it with almond milk and an extra shot. And I had two today, so apologies. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Soma's amazing. I think we all can agree. Yeah. Um, on that note, I think maybe we'll take a short break. We're here with David Crabb at American Student Radio. Thanks for listening and tune in in just a couple minutes.
Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We broadcast from WIUX 99.1 FM every Sunday at noon. You can follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Student Radio and on our website, americanstudentradio.org. Now back to the show. Hi, welcome back to American Student Radio. Uh, we're here in the studio with David Crabb, and we've been talking a lot about his book that was released last year, uh, Bad Kid, and he's going to read an excerpt right now. Um, and would you want to just introduce it really quickly? Sure. Um, uh, this is probably going to be a little bit like what I'm reading tonight, so if you come to that, I'm sorry. You're going to hear it twice. Uh, I was talking about my mom earlier, which made me want to read something uh, from my mom. Um, my mom, like I said, was, was a little tiny... Uh, redhead Newfoundland woman. She looks like a very busty leprechaun. Um, and uh, my mom was one of those moms that was like super invasively supportive, like to the point that you almost want a parent that rejects you more than that <laughs> like level of support. And um, uh, this is basically her talking to me on my first day of high school because up to this point in the book, I'm in middle school and you know the beginning like I know I have funny feelings like when I watch Growing Pains I want to like hug Kirk Cameron really hard but I don't really know that it's like the G word yet that I'm gay so right before high school I'm pretty sure like I'm gay and it scares the hell out of me so I'm, I'm with my mom and she's driving me uh, to school oh and by the way I, I cannot read this without doing the voices as I would do on stage so here we go it's, it's a radio show <clears throat> honey my mom said as we pulled into the drop off circle at school are you gay? What? I shrieked, spitting a sip of orange juice onto the dashboard of the Chevette. You're asking me this on my first day of high school? Honey, I'm not accusing you of anything, sweetheart, she said, turning down our favorite wham cassette. But I worry about you. You used to have friends and date, but all you did this summer was sit in your room alone, and if you were gay, you could tell your mother. My mother always talked about herself in the third person when she addressed me in any serious way. David, your mother wants you to read this sexuality book for preteens. David, your mother wants you to be open-minded at the metaphysics workshop today. David, your mother is going to piss her pants if we don't find a gas station. David, listen to your mother, she insisted, gripping my hand. I would understand if you were a, a homosexual. Homosexual. It was a weirdly clinical word. It was like something that you'd hear in chemistry class to describe a type of combustion. You'll be 15 soon. You're becoming a man and you'll have needs, she explained. Your mother wants you to be secure in those desires. And, honey, being gay is perfectly okay. I'd much rather that than a son who was a, a, a pervert or a schizophrenic like one of those Lifetime movies that your mother watches. Or a pedophile clown. That would be awful, honey. My mom had always thought of herself as an amateur forensics expert. Her bookshelves were packed with a mix of Precious Moments Angels and Charles Manson biographies. It was an odd collision of interest, but that was Terry, a 40-year-old maternity store manager who would rather be dusting for fingerprints over the corpse of a partially cannibalized stripper. You, would be a, you could be a sex freak murderer like Ted Bundy, she continued. Granted, he was handsome, but he was a maniac rapist. Mom, I am not a rapist, I huffed as we pulled up to my high school. But your mother would love you even then. <gasps> Even if you had multiple personalities like Sally Field and Sybil, we would make the best of it. It would almost be like I had even more children to love. So that's a little bit of my mom. <laughs> Dropped me off at school. That's great. Are we on? Yeah, you're on. Okay. Um, so I love that. And I love that your mom refers to herself in the third person. Oh, she still does it. Really? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Still, a, still a constant? I'm wondering yeah. if that if that scene is pulled from anything specific or is it like an accumulation of different, you know, 
Well, a lot of it is in, a, in a, an accumulation. Like, you know, I love writing dialogue. And if you want to write nonfiction or memoir, you're not a robot. You don't have, like, a black box recorder for your whole life, right? So do you do your reader a disservice by just avoiding dialogue because you can't prove that it existed? No, you don't. You're not a journalist. That's not your job. Um, yes, my mother talks about herself in third person. Yes, she asked me a few times in the car when I was young if I was gay. Yes, she bought me like a, like a sexuality book for preteens when I was like nine. Mm. Like my mother did all these things and you know, there's a conversation we have in here, like I said about uh, uh, unisex uh, Clearasil and her me being like, is it bisexual? And there's a very funny back and forth that we have about that. Um, but she, no, I, I don't know specifically that the, the conversations went like that, but that's pretty much how we talk. And, and still, today, she comes to my readings. The last reading she came to, she had a shirt made in the mall at a kiosk. She had the cover of my book, which is my face in mascara with a dead rose. It says, bad kid. And then above it, she had him write, mother of, mm. on a black t-shirt. <laughs> and then she wore it to all my readings at the Texas, film, uh, the Texas Book Festival. Uh, and she loves it. She loves it. She says, do you like your mother's shirt? And your mother had the best time at the reading. Like, she's, <laughs> she's really like that. Um, and she's kind of enjoying, she kind of is enjoying the limelight. Like, she's always been a bit of a performer. And when I did the reading in Austin, it was really fun because afterwards, I did a thing called Literary Deathmatch, which is like a huge sort of comedy show reading series. It's try they're trying to kind of make the reading series into more of like a rock show. Like, it's a little bit more raucous. It was like hundreds of people in this huge, beautiful theater. And afterwards... You know, there's like cocktails after, and you know, a few people were coming up to me and being like, oh, I love your reading, but I looked, I was like, where's my mom? My mother was in the corner, in her shirt, that said, mother bad kid, with like 20 people around her, waiting to talk to her. I kept looking over, and she would be talking to like, a, like a, you know, a gay man that's maybe 10 years older than me, who would be literally holding her hands with like tears in his eyes, talking about his, how lucky and what a wonderful mother she is. Or I'd be looking over, and there would be another mother like holding her hand, talking about, I had a gay cat, and I didn't know what to do. And, you're, and it's, it, it, it's, sort of a, it's sort of like a happy byproduct of the book. I didn't write it with that in mind, but it brings me a lot of joy to see. You know. hmm. Oh, wow. And so does your mom then, do you think that she, in being, you described her as invasively supportive yeah. or, you know, sort of like overprotective almost to, well, not overprotective as much as just like a support system to a fault, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, is she someone that you have relied on because of that? I mean, do you ever feel like you pushed her away? Um, or, oh, yeah. you know, how was that interaction. I mean, I think I went through a very natural process of, of, of pushing her away, you know, in my late teens and 20s in college. I mean, I think everyone sort of wants to, I don't know, I, I think it's healthy to an extent to sort of want to be free and, you know, um, form an identity away from your family. But I also think it's natural for that to be like, you know, a boomerang when you get older, you know. So I think that in a lot of ways, um, you know, I'm connecting with my mom more and more as I'm older just because it's a part of the process. But I, but I think the book was also a big part of it. I, I mean, my, my mom has not said this in these exact words, but I think there's a way I write about my mom and her being a single mom and holding down three jobs. And I think maybe on some level it made my mom feel seen in a way she maybe hadn't realized that I, I saw her. Um, and these are things that I knew perfectly well when I was 16 or 17, but as someone who wasn't an adult and understood what it was like to pay bills and have deadlines, I didn't understand that. So now getting to write this, I got to look back on her and be like, whoa, she had to hold a lot down, you know? Hmm. And how do you, 
sort of put that in context as far as when you think about, I suppose, the coming out experience mm -hmm. through generations, right? I mean, the fact that you did have a have a mother who accepted you or at least was was able or willing to say, it's okay if you're homosexual. I mean, even right. if she didn't maybe fully understand it or or really, um, you know, maybe have friends or or f have it normalized, mm -hmm, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But she was willing to to say, it's okay. Um, how do you how do you think that differs or compares to sort of generational divides? Well, I mean, you know, I write about this a little bit in the beginning of the book, you know, because it I'm the fact that I've come. I mean, the fact that I'm a married man now, and I saw that in my lifetime. He's I mean, taken, guys. That's a, <laughs> sorry. Um, that's uh, but we're poly. No, we're not poly. Um, <laughs> uh, I wanted to be cutting edge, but no. Uh, you know, the the fact that. The fact that I've seen the changes in terms of LG, LGBT rights in my lifetime that I've seen, it's amazing to me. Like, I, like I really didn't think that I would experience that. And, um, you know, I talk about this in, a little bit in the introduction to the book. There was a review for the live show that was, that was bad because an older gay man wrote about it. And he wrote, first of all, the review was just absurd because he was like, why doesn't he use wigs? That was literally a part of the review that I was like, seriously, this is a, a critique? Where are the wigs? Um, but he went on to say, and I think this comes from a place of bitterness. Granted, he can actually not like the show. That's fine. But he said at one point, like, he described my coming out process as seamless to a fault in that the lack of drama compared to what his generation went through doesn't warrant a retelling of the story. And I think that that's such a, I mean, no offense to the guy, but I think it's such a sad way to look at storytelling. I mean, I talked about this yesterday in class. You know, I had a guy in a storytelling class once. Uh, I had a, a few people. It was a, like a 10-person group. People were doing elevator pitches, and before we breaked, this woman pitched her story, and it was about how she spent a year with her mother as she died of cancer and what that, what that process was like losing her and how it brought them close together at the end of her life. And then we had a break. And then a guy came up to me, and he was like, um, I don't know what to do because, like, I'm going to pitch my story after the break, but my story's about how I, I went on a blind date in Central Park, and I was hungover, and I had diarrhea in the park, and I couldn't find a bathroom. <laughs> and, you know, he's like, I can't tell that story now. Her mother died, you know? And it's, it's, that, it's that, str that strange thing that we do to each other uh, where we think, I, I hate hearing people compare their stories like that. Because if we did that as a culture, no one would ever tell stories. Because we'd be like, well, I can't tell my story because it's not as bad or serious. or right. Like Everyone has stakes in their lives, however small the story. And when that guy gave the show that review, I thought, how sad. Because here I am, and I, I work with kids a lot through the Moth High School program. I teach them. I did a, you know, I, I've been a summer camp counselor before at an arts camp. So seeing these kids with like pink and purple hair, you know, they're all bisexual. They're all... It blows my mind to a point that I, I, when I worked at the summer camp, I remember thinking, turn it down. Like, there was that fear still in me from the way I grew up. Like, I, I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to get hurt. Don't say that so loud. And I would have to catch myself and be like, I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that anymore. And, and to me, that, there's nothing about that feeling that's negative. Or like, I can't believe you're having such a seamless experience. You don't know what it was like for me. My dad had a hard time. You know, that's just a beautiful and amazing thing. And it's the way that we should progress as people, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that also relates to sort of the idea that with each generation, there will always be that gap of, well, you don't understand, or, you know, it was different for me, or whatever it may be. But, I mean, the truth is, there is that universality that I think your book is a testimony to, that the moth stories are a testimony to, that connect 
people beyond just generational gaps, um, gender yeah. divides. And, and, and all that being said, too, like, you know, we're, we're, we're lucky people in that we live in, you know, I mean, I mean Bloomington isn't a big city, but it's a, it's a, it's a college town. There's a, there's a school here. There's young people. You know, we're also lucky. You know, I've lived, I live in L.A. now. I lived in New York for 16 years. Even San Antonio, all things considered, is a big city, right? And I don't mean to talk about progress and because I do. I mean, one of the things about this book, it's not technically a YA book. Um, and it's interesting because at book festivals, a librarian will come up and be like, I loved your book. Of course, I can't put it in the school because of the drug. And the next person will be like, I'm a librarian. I can't tell you how much all my sophomores love your book, right? So there's a very differing viewpoint about like what can kids take. 15 is very different across the board depending on the person. But, um, you know, I get emails from teenagers who have read the book and some of them are those kids with pink and purple hair who are bisexual and their parents you know and you know they talk you know they're, they're playing with gender and in in a very in a very public forum at their school and then I get emails from kids who as much as we're talking about how great it is and how much progress there is I get you know I, I have an Instagram chain on this girl who posted my book and she's closeted and she's a lesbian and the only other person that knows is her sister and we talked for like months because she was like I don't know how to come out because where I live, I can't do that. So it's refreshing to me because I think as a whole, culturally, in our media, you see that kind of progress. But we're not, I mean, there's a whole section of the country, massive swaths of the country, where kids, are, kids have it way worse than I have it. They have it as bad as that guy that wrote me that letter who talked about him having to come out in the 60s, you know? So um, I hope that stories like mine and other people's can you know, change that. Why do you feel driven to... I understand the drive and the motivation for you to, to share your stories, to perform. I think you've explained that well, and I think that you you know, were both driven just by nature, but also by the craft. But why then do you feel compelled to educate and to, to lead workshops and even to like, you know, communicate with some closeted woman via Instagram for you know, however long? What is that uh, drive like within you? I think in, this is, a, I'm, I'm writing a lot about this now, so it's a complex question. Um, it reminds me that people are okay. Like, I, you know, I come from, um, you know, my, my, my family. I have, let me put it this way, I have a lot of stuff in me. I get very impatient with people. I get very riled up by, like, stories about Donald Trump and just stories about, you know, uh, go gorillas who were killed for no reason. I mean, these things upset me. And if I was to just live in, like, the social media landscape, I would be a very angry person. I mean, part of the reason I left New York is because I couldn't handle the concentration of people. I couldn't handle, like, the people that would just walk on the right side of a hallway that's not big enough for two people, right? Like, those things started, like, why are you standing in front of subway doors? They are doors, you know? And I find myself coming away from those experiences, because I'm a lot like my dad, really angry, really thinking these, like, negative thoughts about, oh, people are just no good. And whenever I do that, I catch myself, because teaching, teaching people, telling stories with people, hearing their stories, working, like, with vets in the Wounded Warrior program, working with kids in the high school program, working in storytelling in general, I think storytelling is the great unifier. If I could hear all those stories from all those people who I just sort of, ugh, I couldn't believe she was in front of the subway door. That's a bad person. Like, I catch that. And if I could talk to that woman the way that I get to, like, share and speak with people and find out what horrible doctor's appointment had she, had she just come from, you know what I mean? Uh, what is she dealing with with her children? What is she dealing with in her life? Um, 
I think that I think that that sort of keeps me sane. Doing this keeps me sane and it keeps me hopeful because it's a way to connect with people. Like I almost feel more safe now connecting with people through storytelling and hosting and listening and telling stories than I do just like at the bank. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so for me, the more I do this in this context, it keeps me it keeps me sane and it keeps me happy. Hmm. Yeah. And and I hope what and I hope like when I when I work with kids and vets there is a relief I see to them telling their stories. Like there's something that happens, whether it's a weekend we share together or eight weeks where when they finally get up on stage or just in the horrible little room with no windows and fluorescent lights and six people watching where they tell their story and there's, there really is something transcendent. It can be a beautiful piece of art that teaches people, but if they do it right, if you tell your story right, I think it can do something positive for you. It can unlock something in there, you know? Hmm. So with that being said, uh what are you hoping to take away from your experience here at the Writers' Conference in Bloomington, and what have you already uh, taken away, I suppose? Well, they're supposed to make me a gallon of miel at uh, Soma, <laughs> uh-huh. um, so I'm going to take that if I can get on the plane. Um, what do I hope to take away? Uh, I know, I mean, I mean, for, for, you know, right now we're doing these classes, and they're really interesting. Uh, for, for me, honestly, this experience is more about what I'm leaving. W- like, what am I? Because... It, it's great to take away a positive experience and have a nice time and drink a bunch of delicious almond milk and espresso. But um, in the long run, I feel like a big part of my job here is educating people and sharing the book. And if even two or three people in that class uh, feel like after four days they shared some truth that they didn't know how to share before, I'll, that'll make me really happy. I want to thank you so much for being here. It was my pleasure. Um, and do you want to share the details of, of your reading or anything? Yes, the reading is tonight at 8. It is at the Bloomington Playwright Project. Does that sound right? Yes. Thank you. Uh, it's at 8 o'clock, <laughs> and, uh, and it should be a lot of fun. Yeah, and if you can't make it to that, then definitely check out Bad Kid, um, his memoir, which you can buy on Amazon or... Anywhere. In a bookstore, it's all over the interwebs. If you yeah. want to go to the brick and mortar locations, um, mm-hmm. and also you can catch him on the Moth, where he hosts frequently and also performs. So thank you again for listening, and thank you to David Crabb for being here. Thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Thanks for listening to American Student Radio. We're produced by students from Indiana University in Bloomington. Follow us on Twitter at ASR Voice and like us on Facebook at www.facebook.com/americanstudentradio. Our theme music is provided by Lunamatic. Check out Lunamatic's music at www.soundcloud.com lunamatic. That's L-U-N-A-M-A-T-I-C. We'll have new episodes every Sunday on WIUX and streaming on our website at www.americanstudentradio.org.